We're going to carry on going through Acts chapter 7, so let's just start with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, through the Lord we come to you and we put before you the next half hour or so as we think about you and your word and we pray that you will speak to the hearts of each of us and that we will not wander not knowing quite what you mean or quite what your intention is, but that we will see from your word, the Bible, exactly what you want for us and how you've acted in the past and how you continue to act. And we do pray, Father, that very soon the Lord Jesus will return to this earth to end all this madness and to give us all a place in your eternal kingdom. We pray that those who have not yet decided for the Lord Jesus might do so, might get baptised, and that those, those of us who have might be encouraged to keep on keeping on. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so, we saw that the, uh, the whole context of this Act 7 is, is Stephen. He's been uh, arrested. And they're complaining that he's a blasphemer, that he's blaspheming the temple. Because he's saying that, no, you don't need to go into some organized religion. Jesus the Lord Jesus has died and risen again, and he absolutely is the temple of God, and salvation is in him, and that's, that's all you need. And yet for the Jews, they thought, like a lot of people do today, that there's kind of holy space, that the church is, is holy, that, that the physical building is, is everything. And they couldn't get this, didn't want to get it. And so Stephen's going through the history of Israel, and he starts by saying, you know, the God of glory appeared to Abraham, not even in Israel, but when he was not even in the Holy Land, when he was back in Mesopotamia. And he also is showing how all the great Jewish leaders were in fact weak in some way, and yet also they were rejected by the majority of Israel, the majority of God's people. So, he's leading, he's trying to get them to see that you, by rejecting Jesus and crucifying him, you're just doing what they all did. You're not holy. You're sinners like the rest of them. Repent and see the similarities. So, let's pick up. At this point, he's talking about Moses. He says, at this time, Moses was born and was exceeding fair. And he was nourished three months in his father's house. When he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him as her own son. So, all the baby Hebrew boys had to be thrown into the river Nile. And so his parents, Jochebed and Amram, they made this little ark out of bulrushes and put the baby in it and pushed it out onto the river. And then his older sister, Miriam, who was just a kid, was watching, and it seems the worst possible thing happens. Pharaoh's daughter... You know, the daughter of the guy who said, kill all the Hebrew babies. Pharaoh's daughter goes for a swim. And of course the baby cries and she notices it. And there, her heart in the mouth, oh no, of course Moses is going to be killed like all the other babies. But no, she looks at it and says, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And she adopts it. And he grows up as the son of Pharaoh. But you see how when your life is with God, actually big changes do happen. And what looks like a hopeless situation, God can turn right around very quickly. You may tend to think, now no change could happen, I can't get out of my situation like I'm in just now. But you can. God 
does do miracles, not in the sense that a lot of people think, you know, Lali da, razzmatazz, oh yeah, you know, uh, I prayed to God and I went out and I found a thousand quid lying on the street on, in the pavement, of, you know, all those sort of, no. <laughs> but it's, it's more wonderful than that. It's, it's more profound than that. It's deeper than that. Things like this, where one minute, yeah, all the baby boys have got to be killed and then God turns the whole thing right around so that this little boy who's going to be drowned suddenly becomes Pharaoh's son and is actually next in line for the throne. So Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and works. There's a few more seats down here. So, and there's some chairs over there. So, he was intelligent and highly educated. Right? He was mighty in his words and works. He had everything, it seems, going for him. But when he was nearly 40 years old, he came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Now, Paul also talks about this in Hebrews chapter 11, and he says that when Moses was 40 years old, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In other words, he stands up and he says, no, I don't want all this. I want to save my people, the Israelites. So here's the guy who could have been the next Pharaoh, and Egypt was like the most powerful country on the planet pretty well at that time. A man who could have been the most powerful guy on earth, and they apparently, according to the uh, people who study Egyptian history, uh, when the son of the pharaoh was 40, that's when he became king. So, he's 40, he's about to be pronounced king of Egypt, because he is, by adoption, the uh, son of pharaoh, and he stands up and says, no, you know what? You call me Mises, that's the uh, Hebrew, uh, the Egyptian term he would have used for his name but he would have said no I'm Moshi I am Moshi the, the Hebrew the Jew as we might say today and he says I don't want all that I, I don't want to be the king of, of Egypt I want to save the Hebrews who are the despised people whom you are persecuting and have as your slaves and in fact I am one of them and so of course everyone was in shock and the tragedy of it was that he, he gave up all that he could have in order to save God's people. And yet, as Stephen and Paul explained, he actually was rejected by them. And they said, no, we don't want you. We don't want to be saved out of Egypt. And th this is how it is, that the Lord Jesus likewise could have had certain things for himself, as you see in the temptations he had, in the wilderness, but he chose not to, so that he might die to save us. But the majority of us say, nah, not interested, too busy, not my scene, don't want all that stuff. Not interested. It's too bad. But that is the, I'm afraid how it is, in God's whole uh, project, if you like, in saving people, in trying to save humanity. That He's given everything, given the blood of his own son, but people still aren't interested because they only see what is immediately in front of their eyes. Oh, it's raining today. Oh, it's cold today. Oh, it's too hot today. Oh, I, I want this. Oh, I want that. And that's it. 
The fact God's offering you eternity in the future, eternal life, oh no. I don't want to see that because you just see what's in front of their eyes. It also says that um, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to save the children of Israel. It came into his heart to save them. Well, elsewhere we're told that God sent him, that God sent Moses and raised Moses up to go and save the Israelites. But here it says that it came into his heart. It was sort of his idea. The idea came into his head. In the Bible, the heart means the mind. So he's saying that, that yeah, this idea came into him, into his head. Yeah, I won't, um, yeah, I won't be the king of Egypt. I, I will save my people, the Hebrews. And yet, other verses in the Bible say that you know, God raised him up. God sent Moses to save them. So you see how God works. God can put an idea in your head. That's not to say that God plays games with the human mind, but it is also true that there is a higher hand working on human heads. And this is one reason I encourage people to get baptised, so that we might be born of water, that's water baptism, and of the Spirit. And what that means is that God will work directly on your mind, which is actually what we need. Because we might say that, uh, oh, I, I, can't, I can't change myself, because that's how I think, you know. But we can, and God can change your heart. You know, we sin and we ask God, please forgive me for doing what I did, uh, but there is this strong sense in us that, yeah, sure, he forgave me, but I very much fear I shall be here again, that I'm going to repeat it again. And so <clears throat> what man needs is not only forgiveness, but some higher power to think otherwise, to be otherwise, because we are very weak. Everyone thinks they're tough and strong and all the rest of it, but spiritually, mentally, emotionally, we're all so weak. Everyone is weak. Who's strong? No one is strong. They don't put their hands up and say, oh, I'm very strong. Yes, spiritually, mentally. No, you're not. No, nobody is. Man is pathetically weak. And we need <clears throat> this higher spirit, if you like, this power, however you wish to look at it, uh, this other mind, this new pair of eyes, this new pair of spectacles, whereby we can look at life differently, whereby the alcoholic can go into a supermarket and see that bank of, of, of bottles and special offers on this, that and the other, and look at it <clears throat> like I do, like it's, uh, I don't know, a load of women's clothes or something that I'm not interested in buying. Like, sort of, no, I'm, sorry, no offence to women nor to their clothes, but uh, yeah, look, look at, you look at it as if, no, no, that's not for me. I'm, I've got no interest in that. Right? And yet the alcoholic will say, oh, I can't do that. I'm looking at it and I'm sort of all gobbles. My eyes are on stalks. Oh, how much is that whiskey? Oh, vodka's on special. Oh, you know? uh, but you can't of yourself stop that, it seems to me. Because no one has got that iron or that steel in their soul to, to, to think, to, to force yourself to be different. You need God's help. And in what sense do we need God's help? 
in the sense that he will give us his spirit, his mind in us. And that's what he offers us, to be born of water and born of the spirit. And bit by bit, it does happen. I see it in people when they are baptised. If they are open to the gift of that spirit, if that's what they really want, then it happens and they are changed. And so we are able to receive that spirit which is from God, which is what we need. And here, as I say with Moses, you have an example, although this is way back in the Old Testament, of how God can work directly on the human heart. Yet he had the idea to save his people. Right? It came into his heart, it says there. But actually it came into God's heart, and it was God's idea. But God put his idea into Moses' head. He knew that Moses was open to it. And that's what he will do with us. So, he decides he's going to save and it goes wrong. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed, striking the Egyptian. So he sees an Egyptian beating up one of the, uh, one of the Hebrews and he says, uh, no. Uh, and he tries to help the guy and he kills the Egyptian. He supposed his brothers understood that God by his hand was giving them deliverance or salvation, but they did not understand. The following day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting. This is the Jews fighting, the Hebrews fighting each other. And he tried to reconcile them, saying, Gentlemen, your brothers, why do you injure each other? But he that did his neighbour wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Will you kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And Moses fled at this saying, went to live in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. So <clears throat> Moses flees out of fear. He thinks, yikes, everybody knows. Everybody knows that I killed the Egyptian. Now Pharaoh is going to be after me, going to kill me, and so he runs away. He runs away from Egypt into the land of Midian. But when you put that together, this is the advantage of reading the whole Bible, when you put that together with what Paul says in Hebrews 11, he puts it slightly differently. He says that Moses left Egypt by faith, not fearing the wrath of the king. He left Egypt by faith, not fearing the wrath of the king. Here, Stephen looks at it from another angle and says, he left Egypt because he was scared. He was frightened, and so he ran away. So, the Bible does not contradict. You see, you got two sides here. On one hand, he, he ran away from Egypt because he was frightened. On the other hand, he left Egypt, Paul says, because he believed, because he had faith. How could that be? Isn't that a contradiction? Not at all. Because that is absolutely true to how it is with all of us. You may, on one, in one half of your head, really believe. Really believe. But in another half of your head, you're weak. That's how even Moses was. Why is Stephen saying this? Why is he making this point? It's because the, he's talking to Jews, to Orthodox Jews, who thought that Moses was like the most wonderful, you know, perfect, spotless kind of guy. And he's saying, you know what, even he was, half his head believed and half his head was full of fear. And so that is, I'm afraid, how it is. And you remember, there's another guy, 
who comes to Jesus and says, uh, if you can do anything, please... Um, uh, sorry, uh, another guy comes to Jesus um, <clears throat> and Jesus says to him, do, do you believe? And he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, right? in part of my head I believe, but help my unbelief, help, help this bit that doesn't. So, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Yeah, faith and unbelief, belief and not belief, can coexist in someone's head at the same time. That's how it is. And if we're honest, that is how it is with all of us. Now, some people realise that and they get discouraged. Oh, I'm so weak. I'm so pathetic. No, um, that is not a reason to give up the thing I don't believe. But it is also true to say, therefore, that nobody's got 100% faith. You, you meet some people and say, oh, I believe with 100%. I'm so, oh yeah, I'm with the Lord, oh, 100%, absolutely. Uh, get real, no, nobody is 100%. Unfortunately, I, I wish we were, but apart from the Lord Jesus, no, no man is. And so even Moses, who they reckoned was, you know, El Tel, who, who was like the, the boss of their religion, who was the most wonderful guy, so they thought. And he was a good guy, no doubt. But Paul is saying, look, <coughs> he left Egypt in faith and Stephen says he left Egypt because he was dead scared. He was running scared now that Pharaoh's going to find him and kill him. So, <clears throat> what can you say? Um, I'm not saying, oh, don't worry if your faith is not as it should be. Because, of course, we should believe more than we do. We should, and faith means trust. That is what it means. Trust is another uh, way of saying faith. We should trust God more. Every one of us should. But the fact that we are incomplete in that faith does not mean that you don't believe. And that's my point. So relationship with God and with the Lord Jesus is not just for those who reckon they've got 100% faith. No. He is looking for man. God is in search of man. And if he finds you, that you have some faith, you know, as Jesus said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you can move a mountain. In other words, he's looking for a little bit of faith. That's what he's looking for. And as God looks down from heaven at the hearts of everybody walking down the high street outside here in Croydon, and he sees people, you know, totally off with the fairies, thinking about themselves, thinking about this, that, the other. And he sees us, in all our weakness, who do believe. Now, we do believe. Not as much as we should, but we do. Right? This touches his heart. A difficult balance, isn't it? On one hand, I don't want to say, yeah, well, our faith's not very strong, so ah, yeah, but don't worry about it. No, we should believe more. Absolutely. But the fact that our faith is not absolute and is not 100%, well, reading the Bible carefully, nobody's faith, including that of a great guy like Moses, nobody's faith was. And as I say, the context of this is Stephen trying to show the Jews that actually even your great leaders, Moses, etc., were not absolutely spotless. So, Moses stood at the sign and went to live in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. It doesn't tell you this here, but he begat two sons. He had two kids by this woman that he met by a well, um, and he didn't circumcise them. 
He didn't circumcise them. And we're told that God was angry with him for that. In other words, he kind of kind of gave up on God a bit. Because for the Jews, the circumcision was the sign of the covenant. And he says, I, no, no, I'm not going to circumcise my kids. That's over and out with, with God. I've sort of given up on this stuff. And that was not just for the moment. Because he was there for 40 years. And only then does God call him to go and lead God's people out of Egypt. When you split up the life of Moses, it's in three lots of 40 years. He lived 120 years. And the first 40 years he was in Egypt, growing up in this very wealthy background as the adopted son of Pharaoh. And then he tries to save Israel, that doesn't work, and he runs off into the desert, where he works for 40 years as a shepherd, a long time, 40 years, probably, the, if you like, the most mature, the best part of his life, from 40 till 80, he worked as a shepherd, leading sheep round the desert of Sinai. And then, when he's 80, when 40 years are fulfilled, this is 40 years in Egypt, then 40 years working as a, uh, as a shepherd, in, depressed, um, not circumcising his kids, a bit out of touch with God, when 40 years are fulfilled, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. You know, go on to read how God says to him, go to Egypt and lead my people out. And that is what he does. And he led them for 40 years through the wilderness. He's just been leading sheep for 40 years in the same wilderness. And after that, he's told, now go and lead my people. He was like the shepherd of Israel. Lead my people for 40 years through the wilderness. So you see how nothing is in the end random, that your life does kind of work out. His life split up very clearly into three sections of 40 years. Of course, at the time he didn't realize it. But at the end of his life, I'm sure he looked back and he saw it very clearly. And so it is with us. You know, you may live in one flat for 20 years and then in another suburb for 20 years. And in this relationship for 10 years, in that relationship for 20 years, or whatever it might be. And you look back, it's only in hindsight, and hindsight is a great thing, I know. Um, looking back, you see that actually my life was not random. That actually this was not, you know, another roll of the dice. It was not a day at the races. It was absolutely... God was in this. Absolutely. Um, at the time, you don't realise it. But you see, again, this is where faith means trust. That we trust. That, in fact, life is not you know, another roll of the dice. It's not random. It's not a day at the races and don't take it too seriously. No, it, it is all in God's plan. If you trust in him, and nothing is wasted, even your sins, even your stupidity... Oh, why did I get in a relationship with her? Or oh, why did I live in that flat? Or whatever. You know? All that stuff is still used. Even your weak periods. Because it is God's intention, as he says, to do us good at our latter end. That is, that's God's purpose. It's God's intention. So, I wonder if you could start passing the bread and the uh, juice round. 
So when you see the Lord Jesus, you see absolutely the one who went the right way all the time. And all these people looked forward, looked forward to Jesus. And in the same way as Moses was rejected, Stephen was rejected, so Jesus was. And he would have found strength in accepting that rejection by realising that I am not alone. That other people went through this. That's the advantage of reading the Bible, that it becomes a living word. And you realise again and again that man is not alone. In that, not only do we have God's presence, but in essence all our experiences and so forth Somebody else in the Bible went through them. And you can see in their path in life that God still worked with them and brought them through it all towards salvation. And so that is a comfort because the worst thing of suffering is that you feel that I'm alone. Nobody ever actually went through this. Okay. So, okay, so let's give thanks for, let's pray for the bread and the juice. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bread that represents the body of Jesus, for the cup that represents his blood, and we pray that you will bless it to each of us, and that we each, wherever we are on the journey, might identify with him. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.